quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Apollo 11 Beyond the Moon. I'm Brian Stelter, CNN's chief media correspondent. And today we have a very special episode for you. We're going to take you inside the Apollo 11 mission with one of its astronauts, Michael Collins. Collins was born into a military family and attended West Point, where he graduated into the Advanced Day Fighter Training Team at Nellis Air Force Base. After several years of advanced flight training, Collins was selected by NASA to pilot for their Gemini and Apollo programs. Collins conducted his first spacewalk in 1966 with the Gemini 10 spacecraft. On this mission, he became the first person to meet another craft in orbit. But his most exciting mission took place three years later. On July 16, 1969, Collins, Buzz Aldrin, and Neil Armstrong launched into space. Their destination was the moon. While Armstrong and Aldrin walked on the moon, Collins was left alone to pilot the Apollo 11 command module. For 21 and a half hours, he circled the moon, at times losing all contact with mission control. We all know how this mission ended, with an incredible success, an historic first. But at the time, nobody knew what would happen. Collins, Armstrong, Aldrin, were all taking an incredible risk. So I want to ask Collins about that, as well as where he wants NASA to be going now, beyond the moon. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor. 50th anniversary right around the corner. What does this mean to you? What does this occasion, this anniversary mean to you? Well, it's, it's a time, I think, to stop and think about where we are and where we're going. And uh, if... Uh, the year 50 is some magic in bringing attention to it, well, all the more power to it. I, I think it's a good time right now for uh, space exploration. And it feels like a moment now where so many decades have passed, most Americans alive today weren't alive for the moon landing. Yes. So maybe they're only now being able to watch and experience it for the first time. It's amazing. In some cases, they're watching it on YouTube, you know. Or, or on a big screen, you know, in ways that didn't exist 50 years ago. Yeah, vi- vicariously, as they say, maybe that's better than actually being there. Oh, no, uh-huh. I hope not. No. I hope not. But it is a chance for people to understand what happened. Yes, and of course. Do you view it as a, as a miracle in some ways, that, that America was able to complete that task at the end of the, of the decade as Kennedy dreamed? Now, uh, well, in a sense, if you look at the very beginning and then you look at the ending, uh, perhaps it does have a miraculous touch. But if you go through it step by step, mission by mission, it was a very carefully planned and uh, it was executed in little small increments, little tiny bites of technology. And everybody knows what your role was. But how do you describe it? How do you tell people about it? Oh, well, I was the uh, I was the third guy on uh, on a. Apollo 11, and 
and, and I'm asked all sorts of questions peripheral to that, uh, negative, uh, but uh, I have to say in all honesty, um, for me it was just a wonderful experience from beginning to end. Uh, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin were wonderful companions. I felt honored to join them. The fact that I did not walk on the moon to me was really kind of superficial. I felt that I was a, a, a full third partner in the venture and uh, when, for example, I was behind the moon and not quite knowing what was going on, uh, I, I was asked after the flight, weren't you terribly lonely, the loneliest man in this whole lonely mission and the lonely history of this lonely planet? Weren't you lonely? And I said, no, not at all. I was happy. I had, a, I had hot coffee. I could turn the uh, thermostat up to 72 degrees. Uh, I, I loved my, uh, my surroundings. The, Apollo 11 command module, Columbia, it was a happy home for me, and uh, far from feeling separated, I felt very much a part of what was going on. You say sometimes people, people have a negative connotation of being the third guy, is that what you were saying? Oh, I hope not. No, 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 no. If they do, I'm trying to dispel that notion. Mm, I see. Uh, yeah. I, I was a junior partner, but, but a partner. Absolutely. And that experience, circling the moon for 21 hours, 21 hours, right? I have no idea. I mean, it's been 50 years now. Maybe 49 and a half. I think you're probably off a little bit. Yeah. You know, all of these hours circling, was there fear? You know, because we, you know, you didn't know what the outcome would be the way that we all do today. I'm just trying to take myself back to what it would feel like not knowing what's going to happen next during this mission. You know, when I drive down the highway and someone coming the other way gets over in my lane and we pass one another 120 miles an hour, 60 plus 60, that is fear. Uh, space uh, flying is not that. It's worry, however. Worry is sort of the first cousin of fear because uh, it's such a long and frazzled daisy chain, if you will, of events from Earth to Moon and back, those daisy chains are held together by links, each little segment, each event, trying to get uh, that Saturn V to put you in orbit, getting out of orbit, getting on your way to the Moon. Each one of those things is, is a hazardous event in itself and an a, a integral part of the daisy chain. Break one of those little links and everything down uh, downhill from there is useless. Uh, so yes, it's a, it's a sense of awareness, a sense of worry, but fear isn't quite the same visceral. You don't have a visceral feeling of fear, no. I remember Armstrong had, a, had commented at one point, he thought maybe there was only a 50-50 chance of this all succeeding. Did you feel similarly? Yeah, I, I don't recall those numbers being thrown around, but yeah, it sounds good to me, 50-50, <laughs> but 50-50, I have to clarify and say that that means Everything went well. We did everything exactly right. We came back with the moon rocks we were supposed to have brought and so on. Yeah. Now, in terms of uh, surviving the experience, uh, I, I never put a number on that, but it had been a lot higher than, uh, a lot more optimistic than 50-50. I don't know what it was. We never, we never said, hey, Neil, what do you think your chances of surviving this? Buzz, are you going to be here tomorrow evening at uh, cocktail hour? I mean, uh, uh, so we just didn't work that way. So much unknown, but then so much confidence as well. Yes. That quiet confidence of just accomplishing everything in order, one by one. Uh, there's a lesson there for generations about accomplishing huge goals yes, and yes. getting through them step by step. 
Yes, well, we were the right people at the right time, I guess. Uh, I always say Neil Armstrong was born in uh, 1930. Uh, Buzz Aldrin was born in 1930. Mike Collins was born in 1930. We just sort of wandered in at exactly the right time. A lot of luck in a situation like that, I believe. Do you ever wonder what would have happened, where your life would have gone if you hadn't been one of the three? No, no, I was, uh, I had one of what I considered at the time to be the best job I could possibly have, which was, uh, I was in the fighter test section, uh, experimental test pilot at Edwards Air Force Base. Oddly enough, well, maybe not so odd, but when the space program came along, people, uh, some of the people in my bracket there um, declined to go work for NASA. They said, uh, well, there are all sorts of things. I don't want to be a shot off uh, like a round of ammunition in one of these rocket things. I want to fly something with wings. I want to fly something that's different every day. I want to fly day after day, not just fly maybe once every couple of years. So a lot of uh, experimental test pilots, the space program was okay, but now they were in the minority. Most of them were like I was. We were uh, enthralled by the notion of flying into space higher, faster, off to different places. So we were uh, very pleased when NASA came along, and lo and behold, uh, what were they looking for? They happened to be looking for test pilots. Hearing you describe those years, it makes me wish there was a, an equivalent project today in America. Well, I think there is a way out there. I call it Mars. I, I used to joke that uh, after the flight of Apollo 11 that NASA sent me to the wrong place. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, actually, I thought NASA should be renamed the National Aeronautics and Mars Administration. And, uh, and, and I, I bring that notion with me over the past 50 years. I'm still looking for Mars, and I'm, I'm thinking it's getting closer. And we're getting people like Jeff Bezos and, uh, and, and Musk. Uh, we're throwing billions into the kitty to add to what's there from federal appropriations. And so I think we're getting to the point where we have more of the can-do as well as the will-do aspect of going to Mars. And that, that, that pleases me a lot. I like that idea. Do you think President Trump is realistic when he talks about his uh, vision for going to Mars? Uh, no, I think his vision is going back to the moon. Uh, I, I don't think he's uh, too much aware of Mars. Maybe he doesn't understand that there is a planet Mars. <laughs> that's pretty, uh, that's pretty uh, strong. Oh. <laughs> well, would you like me to double it or quadruple it? <laughs> no, I, I, it is interesting. Dave. He's talked about wanting to go to the moon in six years, right? Right along the time his second term would end if he's reelected. And it does seem that NASA's vision for Mars is much further off. Is it a mistake to try to go back to the moon first before focusing on Mars? I, I don't know. It's one way of doing business. It's not my favorite way of doing business. I prefer what I would call uh, the John F. Kennedy Express uh, method. Uh, if we want to go to Mars, I think we should so declare, and that be our not just national but our international human target, our next goal. I think uh, going, going back to the moon first and filling in some of the gaps of our uh, knowledge is an okay way of doing it. Uh, Neil Armstrong was a lot better engineer than I was. He was not here when, when, when this notion of going back and having a, a, a gateway uh, from the moon to Mars. A lot of experts are really uh, thinking that that's the way to go. I happen to 
register a minority view and say, I think if we want to go to Mars, we should so declare and go the same way President Kennedy described the forthcoming lunar landing. Right, right. If Mars had been an option for you, would you have wanted to go? It's a much further, much more uh, intense journey. Well, Mars' uh, round trip is like two years. You know, if you count the planets out from the sun, it's Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. Ooh, Earth and Mars are right next to each other. Yeah, but it's hundreds <laughs> of millions of miles. So uh, a round trip to Mars is about a two-year deal. Uh, it takes you maybe nine months to get there. When you get there, however, you can't turn around and go home. Planets are not in the proper alignment. You have to wait maybe a year. So you, if you add all that together, it's a two-year round trip. That makes a, a, Apollo seem like kind of child's play, doesn't it? Uh, really? I would never call it that. Oh, okay. I would never call. I would never call something that was so heroic for the country and the world child's play. Okay. But hey, you've you've been uh, you've been there. You've been able to talk about this and inspire people for decades. And the name of our our podcast here, this series we're doing is is called Beyond the Moon because it, it is so essential to give people. That kind of inspiration. Hey, I like the title. Do Can, you? Do you have a patent on it? <laughs> I don't huh? think we do. Well, you ought to get one. I like that. <laughs> do you? We, we've got to keep talking about going beyond the moon. We've got I to think so. be able to learn from what you accomplished and take it further. I, I wonder, some of your family members came with you today for this taping. What do you share with them? What are the lessons that you've tried to impart from your time in Apollo with your own family and friends? One, one would be goal setting. Uh, I, I think in our everyday life, uh, we sort of wander around, at least I wander around, not quite sure where I'm going or, or why. Uh, and I think it's, uh, it's good to stop and, and contemplate once in a while. Where am I in my life? What is it I want to do? Where can I go? How am I going to go about getting there? Once I remember saying uh, to Houston, hey, Houston, uh, Apollo 11, I got the world in my window. And that was it. I, you know, I could look out the window and there's a tiny little globe. Well, in a strange way, we all have or can have a world in our windows. Maybe, our, maybe the world in our window has got nothing to do with space exploration, but whatever it is, uh, uh, we consider this dinky little tiny planet we live on. It's our world. It's the world in our window. When we look into our window, are we doing the right things? Are we taking care of the planet? Are we, uh, are we misusing it? Uh, and so on. So I, I, I think there are some tie-ins there. I've heard you say that when you're up there looking at the Earth from Moon, you're thinking about how fragile this planet is. I don't know why that is. Uh, you, you know, I, I, I grew up thinking that the, uh, the Earth was made out of rocks. And when I look back from uh, 240,000 miles, you get the, the, the feeling, well, there it is, this thing that I've been looking at. I, I see the blue of the ocean and the white of the clouds. I see a streak of uh, rust that we call continents, but it's a tiny little thing. And uh, somehow it, it projects, it almost gives off an aroma of fragility. And I don't know why that is. It, that reaction was totally unexpected to me, and today I can't explain it, why it looks fragile. But if you examine terrestrial fragility, it's there. I mean, we are treating it as, uh, or making it fragile in, in so many different respects. It's interesting to hear that you've had 50 years to reflect on that feeling, and it's still something that maybe mystifies you a little bit. 
It does. Yes, it does. It does. Well, the, the planet Earth is such a complex uh, thing now, and and, and such d disparate uh, attitudes of, of people who want this that, and the other thing done. One of the amazing things about the Apollo program, specifically Apollo 11, was that, let me put it this way, at, right after the flight, we were uh, privileged to make around the world trip. I was flabbergasted. I, everywhere we went, people said, instead of, oh, you Americans have done it now, they said, we, we did it. Hey, we did it. We human beings. We human beings did yeah, it. Yeah, got together, despite a million different differences that we may have as individuals, collectively, nationally, internationally, we all got together and said, we did it. We did this thing. And I can't think of another instance in which humankind has been more united on a specific project or specific attitude or a specific venture than, than that one. And that's all the more reason to go do it again. I'm for it. Uh, this time, a little further. And, a little further, go to yeah. Mars. Let's, let's sneak on by the moon and uh, keep going to Mars. <laughs> You've had 50 years to think about this, this next question. What shocked you most? What surprised you most about the mission itself? That everything, that everything worked. That everything worked. Yeah, it's a, uh, you know, from here to the moon and back is a, a very fragile daisy chain of events. These events are held together by individual links. I think once I counted something like 29 of them events along the way, you got to get the rockets to work to get in orbit. Then you got to get out of orbit. Then you got to be on the right path and, and so on. Any break, any link that breaks, the rest of the chain is useless. And uh, I was keenly aware of that before we set out. And the fact that nothing broke, as complicated as it was, it all worked perfectly as advertised. That was the big surprise to me. The docking maneuvers, right? This must have been the most single challenging part for you. Well, yeah, probably was. The lunar module, uh, Eagle, was uh, uh, nested inside the upper stage of the, of the uh, Saturn V rocket. So when we were just past Earth orbit, what I had to do was uh, separate turn the command module Columbia around, go back, uh, find with my probe, the, the drogue, the target of Columbia, and, and maneuver very minutely, very quietly, close quarters, where, I mean, four or five inches makes a difference. Boom, grab it and then pull it out. Uh, so that was, from a pilot's point of view, probably the most complicated thing I had to do. But there were a whole series of checkpoints and problems and so forth along the way. And you must get asked a lot of the same questions again and again about the piloting, about the maneuvers. I'm just curious, what do people not ask about often enough? What's the part of <laughs> Apollo 11 that we might risk forgetting or, or leaving out of the story? The question that people that they might ask is why? Why do you go? Why do you do this thing? Why in the first place? Yeah. And, and to me, it's something I really cannot explain in uh, scientific or technical terms. To me, it's a, a feeling, an emotion. To me, it's, uh, 
I go out and I look up into the sky at night, see the stars. seems to me that I want to, not I, but we people in general want to know uh, what is what. Uh, to go, to know, to smell, to see, to understand, to, to understand our, our universe, to understand there are other parts uh, of it. Uh, to me, that, that, that's kind of a thing that says, uh, I, I don't want to live with a lid over my head. I want to remove that lid and be aware of what can possibly go on. And that's what you and your colleagues did. Uh, yes, I think so. I hope so. Thank you for sharing it with us. Well, thank you. It's nice, nice to be here. Great talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. It's amazing to hear about the mission from someone who was actually there. And now, 50 years later, to hear where you hope we are heading next. And thanks to all of you for tuning in for Apollo 11 Beyond the Moon. In our next episode, we're going to discuss the people who worked behind the scenes to make the Apollo 11 mission happen, often for far too little credit. Meet the women and the people of color during the space race. That's coming up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.